The true story of Father Stuart Long, the boxer turned priest, is a tale of family heartache, suffering, and redemption. Academy Award nominated actor Mark Wahlberg introduces us to his new film, Father Stew, in a world over exclusive. And with the Synod on Synodality rolling through dioceses, we bring you the first installment of our World Over Synod editor of the Catholic Response, Father Peter Stravinskis, and professor of theology at Catholic University, Chad Pecknold, are here to kick off our synodal way. And some special moments from great authors we've featured over the past 25 years. The World Over begins right now. Welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get started. My first guest tonight is a two-time Academy Award-nominated actor, as well as a successful producer and entrepreneur. He has a passion project he's been working on for years, and it may be his most personal film yet. It's called Father Stew. And it tells the amazing true story of a self-destructive boxer-turned-priest. I sat down with him recently in Los Angeles to talk about how Father Stu's story tracks with his own life and struggles and the Catholic faith that saved him. Here's my exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg. I want to start with where you first heard about Father Stu. I'd never heard of this man. I cover this stuff for a living. Mm -hmm. I literally never heard of Father Stuart Long. How did you encounter this story? Okay, I'm at an Italian restaurant in Beverly Hills with two priests, um, and we're just trying, to, me and one of the priests are just trying to enjoy our meal and, uh, and a glass of wine, and the other priest is adamant about pitching me this movie idea. And then uh, my wife had heard the pitch and said, oh my God, you gotta do this. And then he told me the pitch again. I said, why do you keep pitching me this movie? You know nothing about movies in Hollywood, and uh, and and uh, and then something just caught my attention about the story. What was it? What was the one thing that you went? I have to do this. This is in what, 2016? Yeah, maybe yeah, 2016, 25. It's been about six years in, uh -huh. in, in the making. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I just said start from the beginning, mm -hmm. and then when I started to hear the story, you know, it's like everything happens for a reason. So I've always been kind of thinking about how do I continue to pay forward all the blessings that have been bestowed upon me. I know God didn't put me in this position to kind of forget about where I came from. I've been doing lots of stuff in my own community where I grew mm -hmm. up and worked with inner city kids and at-risk youth. But he doesn't give you the, the, the gifts and the talents until it's time to utilize in the right way and for him and not for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've always been kind of saying, okay, what is my mission? What is my purpose? Mm -hmm. And planting this seed, letting it blossom, and then utilizing that to, to, to continue to spread his word. You financed this movie yourself as well. This was not easy to make. It's not like the studios were yapping to get the Father Stew story. Uh, yes, I broke the, the cardinal rule. You never put your own money into a film. <laughs> right. But um, I didn't even really go out to a lot of people. 
I didn't send it to any major studios. I had a couple of friends who I had made kind of small independent uh, movies with or people that I made a couple of true stories with and they didn't even really respond to it. Mm. So I said, you know what, I'm just gonna do it on my own. Father Stu is this priest. He's kind of a wayfarer. He's trying to find his way. He's a, he's a roustabout guy. Um, at one point he told- To put told, it mildly. Well, to put it mildly, I'm trying to, it's a family audience, Mark. Uh, he says, he tells the rector when he's denied access to the seminary, he says the church need, what the church needs is somebody who will fight for God. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I love the church, but for me, it's not about the church as so much as it is the guy who died to build it mm -hmm. and, and his message. Um, everybody else are human beings working to serve God mm -hmm. the best they can. We're all weak. Uh, and, you know, I get that. But uh, it, he, he, was, he had found his calling, and he was, he was really ready to commit to, uh, to serving God in a very different way. There are parallels here, Mark, between your journey and Father Stu's journey, which is the first thing on second watching I went, wait a minute. I mean, he had a few brushes with the law. So did you in your youth. Was it about finding through suffering, your purpose and your direction, and, and with faith. Is that what? Yeah, always, but you know, it's one of those things where, uh, did I think it was a great part for me to play? Yes, but it was more important to tell the story and get the story out there and encourage other people to find their own faith and their own purpose in life mm -hmm. uh, and bring, bring uh, lapsed Catholics back to church. Mm -hmm. uh, I just felt like it was, it, was a, it was a story and a message that everybody needed to hear um, and so, yes, do I always try to find some sort of personal connection to a role? Absolutely. I need to identify with it some way. Um, is this something that I identify with more than anything else? Absolutely. Is this my mission to now continue to do Stu's work um, and, and take on that responsibility? Yes, I've spent 50 years working on Mark Wahlberg, whether it was the good part of Mark Wahlberg or the bad part of Mark Wahlberg, and now it's about you know, doing more, giving hmm. back. Yeah. What is Stu's mission that you feel you you have to continue? Uh, you know, Stu was one of the most brutally honest. I I actually remember now what the thing that stuck out to me. Okay. Uh, Father Ed was telling me a story about how, you know, Stu was already in the assisted living home. Um, there was a giant line of people waiting. He was a very prideful guy, so he wanted to continue to take care of himself, even you know as his uh, his sickness um, worsened. And he was just trying to wash his face in the sink. And this woman barged in, and she basically cut the line. And she was a, a big contributor to the church, so she felt like she had the right to to access mm -hmm. to it any time. I'll give you the mild version. I won't give you yeah. the, the hard rated R language that Stu used at the time. But he was there. He was just trying to wash his face, and she was complaining her car window had gotten broken they stole her computer mm -hmm. and he looked at her and he said good you probably deserve that and the guys probably need it more than you do now give some more money to the church and get out of here I got people <laughs> that I need to talk to uh, and again I changed the wording a little yeah. bit for our family audience but yeah. um, I was like whoa it was uh, he was he was a really honest brutally honest guy but you know he touched so many people so many people could relate to him yeah and he told the truth and you know um, and it's an amazing story of suffering um, accidents uh, hardships that he can't fathom or understand or make sense of which I think everybody feels at some point or another well, yeah, but then he ultimately embraced those things mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. what that's what God it gives me so much hope and so much understanding because 
you know, death is inevitable, you know, sickness, mm -hmm. all of those things are inevitable. We're going to face those, but how you, how you face those things and how Stu was able to embrace those things. Mm -hmm. And as his phys physicality started to deteriorate, his spirituality just soared and people recognized that and they recognized the truth in that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like smoke and mirrors, like, mm -hmm. oh no, this is a, um, he was glad that this happened to him. It allowed him to get closer to God through his suffering. Yeah. And it gave him the ability to share that with other people in a very honest way that was very relatable. Life's going to give you a gut full of reasons to be angry. You only need one to be grateful. Push! I think God saw something in you worth saving, but it's up to you to decide what you've got to offer. It's the place you told me you believed in me. I thought it makes sense being back here to do this. Your son is about to make a huge mistake. Well, I'm gonna be a priest. For Halloween. I'm praying for you, Bill. Don't you dare. You're violating my rights. There's a man going around taking names. We've all been wrong, and we've all done some wrong. But he came to forgive us. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There's no easy way to deliver this news. You have a progressive muscle disorder. The muscles weaken until they cease to function. Is there anything it doesn't mess with? Yeah, erectile function. I'm trying to be a priest, pal. The wise men will bow down before the throne. Oh, no, I won't bow down. Why? It's late. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crown. Man don't lose when he gets knocked down, but when he won't get up. You mentioned a moment ago the R-rated language that Father Stu used. You don't shy away from that in this movie, no, um, no. which I have to tell you, at first I thought, oh, wow. And then as you watch it, the language really gives it its authenticity. That's who these people are, and frankly, who your viewing audience is in many ways. Was that the thinking there? Because a lot of times they'll sanitize this for a family audience or a faith um, film. Yeah, you know, we had always talked about, you know, what the tone of the movie was. And uh, Father Ed had told me a wonderful story about how Father Stu and his dad and a couple of the friends went to go see the fighter and how much they loved the movie, but also how much it affected them in a much more personal way because it really reminded them a lot about aspects of their own life. Mm. Um, and, you know, people, has, there is people swear you know we wanted to be brutally honest we want to make sure that we're we're not this movie is not exclusive to catholics and devout mm -hmm. people this is inclusive to everybody who needs people you remember what god's mission was right he didn't come to save the righteous that's right so um and you know many 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 hardened men became great great uh you know people who did wonderful service to the lord yeah, yeah. well and yeah. it's not cheap grace that's what i thought when i watched yeah. it the first time no cheap grace is the complete opposite. Right. That's somebody who's asking for forgiveness without repenting, without without confessing. Mm -hmm. It's the complete opposite. But this is a hard path, Mark. This guy's yes. journey is very hard. But many people are having very difficult journeys right now, you know. And that's that's who we want to touch. That's who we want to inspire to to be able to overcome and to persevere. I did a lot of research before we met today. Um, during your teen years, you had a rough time in Boston. I mean. You were, you were on coke, you were getting in fights. What were you angry at? And how does that, it seems that ties in some ways to what Stu was looking for in this story. Well, if you kind of go back to what, 
what I was most hurt by or what bothered me the most, um, even though we didn't have much mm -hmm. at all, uh, we had each other, you know, the youngest of nine. Um, my dad was a truck driver. My mom put herself through nursing school. And my parents separated when I was 11. I was devastated, mm. you know. And then I went bouncing back and forth between, you know, my mom's yeah. house and my dad's house. My mom quickly got remarried. My dad never got married again. My dad was my hero. Mm. Um, yeah, that was difficult. You know, at that time, I wasn't, I wasn't a, a leader. I was a follower, mm. you know. And I was easily influenced by various people. And I looked up to the wrong people. And... But there were positive influences in my, in my life that were there that I just didn't recognize them as being the people that I should listen to. Mm. They didn't have the cool car, they didn't have people looking up to yeah. them, they didn't have the sneakers, they didn't have all the things that we didn't have that we finally realized, you know, or that we thought was important. Um, my father Flavin, Jim Flavin, who has been right. such an influence in my faith and my life, who was the consultant on this movie. Um, Your parish priest yes, back home. Yes, he would come out. In the morning, he was surprised that you know thirteen-year-old kids were hanging out on the on the corner at you know two o'clock in the morning drinking okay. beer. But he would instead of like chasing us off, he'd sit there and he'd have a beer and he'd have a conversation with us. And mm -hmm. when all those guys that I looked up to that I wanted to be like, um, when I got in trouble, when I got incarcerated, they never came to visit me. Mm -hmm. And Father Flavin was there. Father Flavin was there when I went to court. He was there when I was incarcerated. He was there when I came home, and he was he's still in my life to this day. And that was a real turning point in your life. That. That if that, doesn't, wake if up that doesn't turn you turn you around and wake you up, nothing will. Father Stu's story is really one of family, a shattered family, in pain and wounded over the death of a, an older boy, and the family breaks up and Stu then finds his way. But the miracle of Father Stu, in many ways, is that he brings his family back together and continues his mission. It's an incredible story. His his crowning achievement, uh, which you know, I think would have been too much emotionally for, mm -hmm. and we could have, we could have made, uh, you know, a uh, 20 episode saga of <laughs> Stu's stories. Yeah. But, um, was that on his, on a gurney, he was in the church as his mom and his dad were being baptized mm -hmm. and they were both obviously very angry at God. They had lost their youngest son very early. Uh, he basically went to bed, took a nap and never woke up. Mm. And that really devastated their family. It obviously, you know, it, it rocked their their foundation, and mm. the faith was was not something that they were able to turn to. They turned away from, yeah. and it was Stu that brought them back uh, to their faith. And and yeah. How hard was it to make this movie? And first time director, we gotta say, Rosalind Ross does an incredible job. Wrote this, directed it. How did you find her? We had had uh, a couple of people that we had take a crack at a pass of the script. Nothing was. Nothing was really kind of registering for us. Mm -hmm. And um, even to the point where Father Ed got so frustrated with the process, he was like, this is not going to work. We shouldn't do this. And I, and I was already so far down the road. And I prayed about it and prayed about it. I said, no, no, I have to do this. This is my calling. There's a very specific reason why I've been called to do this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he said, okay, you know, I hope you do the right thing. And, and please, you know, I, and I asked for Stu's intercession. I asked for the Lord's intercession in Mary. And I prayed about it every single day. Um, and I was able to find through, again, a miracle. Everything happens for a reason, right? So I asked Mel if I could sit down with him and talk to him. I was picking his brain about how he got the passion made and mm -hmm. all the obstacles. Who plays your face. father in the movie? Yes, all the obstacles that he had to face. And, 
you know, why he was compelled to finance it himself and mm -hmm. all of those things. And Rosie had written another script for Mel that he and I were going to make it. He was going to direct uh, called Destroyer, which is this amazing giant epic of World War II. Yeah. Uh, she just said, you know, I'd like to take a crack at it. And I said, okay, why not? I mean, I really loved her writing. I was a big fan of what she had done. Um, three months later, she hands me the script hmm. to the movie that I literally wanted to make. I didn't want to change a thing. And I, I was talking about, do I direct it? Do I try to talk Mel into directing it? And then I was like, why not Rosie? I mean, mm -hmm. she could put it on the page. She could put it on the screen. Wow. That's a, that's a big leap, though. Yeah, it is. Wow. But, you know, again. She does an extraordinary job. This movie is yeah. incredible. She's fantastic. The emotional power of this in your performance, um, how did you prepare for that? This is a, I mean, you see this guy, the early part of the life, I could see where you could relate to that. You could find connective points. But as he degenerates, as his body succumbs to this muscular disease, yeah. how did you prepare for that part of it, which is very moving and powerful? Well, again, I don't want to get emotional. It's just such a sensitive subject because, you know, my dad didn't have IBM, but my dad had cancer, my dad had strokes, my dad was mm -hmm. the strongest guy that I'd ever seen, and then next thing you know, my dad was in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. and, you know, my dad couldn't walk, and we had to, you know, take care of him, you know, he was lived in an assisted living home. Mm -hmm. So I understood that, but I also understood my search for my purpose um, in the big picture of what God is expecting of me. and Which is what? To do his work to serve him, to utilize the talents and gifts that he's given me to help others and inspire mm -hmm. others no matter where the situation is, where they come from, what obstacles they face. Mm -hmm. That there is there is a purpose and, and God will put them in the right place at the right time and he'll give them the right words or the right tools to, to accomplish the mission. You know, I, I lost my mom during the making of the movie. Right. And I kind of just... I went to, obviously went to the services and everything, and I was able to, you know, um, digest it a little bit. I kind of kept it bottled inside, mm -hmm. and then I was here in this church, very church, shooting the scene where I'm asking God why. Before the crawling, yeah. Before the crawling, at, at the altar. At the altar. Yeah, and uh, I was one take for probably about 15 minutes, and it all just came out. Wow. Yeah. I've never gone to acting school, but I wouldn't do, there isn't anything I wouldn't do to prepare for a role. And I just mm -hmm. feel like because of all my real life experience, it does give me an advantage as an actor mm -hmm. to play the roles that I should be playing. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to go and try to do, you know, uh, Othello, you know, next week. I would be a little out of my wheelhouse. That doesn't mean if I wouldn't spend the years of preparation to go yeah. and try to do that, that would yeah. maybe be my next challenge. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's just... Um, this is what I'm meant to do. You mentioned it a moment ago that this is a big, this is something new for you. Is this a career shift for you where you'll spend your career on this more redemptive fair and these more redemptive personal stories of faith? Um, well, if I continue to act at the the pace that I'm acting, uh, mm -hmm. I always want to do something completely different. So I want to do mm -hmm. comedy, I want to do drama, I want to do action, I want to do those things. But in my personal life, and what I utilize for my platform, I'm put to task and challenge to, to utilize my gifts to do great things for other people. And that also doesn't mean that I necessarily need to do it where I'm waving the flag, look at me, because the left hand's not supposed to know what the right hand is doing and almsgiving, mm -hmm. right? But I've got to, because it all comes down to the biggest critic, the 
the one person that matters when you are judged for what you've done. Because I could be out here saying all these wonderful things, and if I'm right. behind closed doors doing God knows what, mm-hmm. it's still going to end up very bad for me. So I have, I have had a lot of real-life experience, and I've made a lot of mistakes, and I'm continuing to do the work and not look for cheap grace. Yeah. You know, and do the mission. The mission is to plant those seeds, to blossom, and to do God's work. It's an extraordinary movie. I'm so excited. I, you know, I, it's one of those things where um, I couldn't be more proud of the movie, everybody's contribution to the movie. I've, I've, I've made a lot of movies, and a few times, there's a handful of times where I've made a movie where everybody's there to service the story and the vision, and of course, you know, Stu's work. It's crazy because it took six years to get it there, and then it took, we only had 30 days to make it. 30 days? Yeah, and it's pretty, it's pretty ambitious in its scope and size and what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. I remember one of the actors um, in the film just saw the movie, goes, oh my God, I thought we were making this little independent movie. <laughs> right. And I said, we were. He goes, I know, but it feels like a blockbuster. And I said, well, we, we had high hopes for it. And you know, I think um, with Stu's journey, the character arc, all the stuff, I mean, how much he changed physically and all those things and how much he grew spiritually um, and the humor in the movie. But it's hard to do these stories, Mark. An externalized conversion because it by nature is something that happens inside, that is such a hard nut to crack. I I cannot wait for people to see it. I cannot wait to go from city to city, state to state, encouraging people to see it, showing them, you know, having conversations and encouraging people. And if we get one other person we plant one more seed in one other person, you know, the next guy to step up and, and you know, even if it takes him 50 years to, to get there, to impact somebody else, and, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our job. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Father Stu, starring Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, written and directed by Rosalind Ross, opens in theaters on Good Friday, April 15th. Last October, I announced that we would be opening up the Synod on Synodality, not only to those invited to Rome or selected by their dioceses, but to our audience. We decided to accompany the Church on this synodal listening journey. Now, I ask you, the viewers, to choose five topics that you're most concerned about right now, that you'd like to hear more about. And you responded. We've received thousands of tweets and emails, and tonight, we're going to share with you the top five issues that you think need attention in the church today. They are better Catholic teaching and evangelization, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the sacraments, marriage and the family, the sanctity of life, priestly vocations and religious life, and finally, preserving traditions and the traditional Latin Mass. Joining me now with analysis of the first of our World Over Synod discussions and news of the day is editor of the Catholic Response, Father Peter Stravinskis, and professor of theology at the Catholic University of America, Chad Pecknold. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Father, I want to start with you. Uh, Catholic teaching and evangelization is the number one most important issue to our viewers. First of all, are you surprised by this? And do you expect that issue to rank at all at the Synod in Rome? I'm not surprised that it surfaces as an issue, uh, because if we don't know what the Church teaches, uh, how are we evangelizing? And and why has the evangelization process been so bad for the past 40, 50 years? It's precisely because no one seems to know, although there's no shortage of documents 
uh, I mean, from Paul the Sixth Cradle of the People of God to John Paul's Catechism and, and hundreds and hundreds of documents in between. Uh, but somehow or other, these always remain great secrets and uh, they fail to surface in religious education programs and, and unfortunately in some venues, so-called Catholic colleges where they're actually contradicted. So it's it's a serious problem. And, and you know, we've met the enemy and it's us. We've, we have not responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that have come to us through the authentic magisterium and therefore unable to uh, to do the job that needs to be done by virtue of our baptism and confirmation. This past Saturday, a plenary meeting of the German Catholic Church's Synodal Way ended with votes in favor of draft texts calling for same-sex blessings and changes to the catechism on homosexuality. Now, the participants backed a document entitled Blessing Celebrations for Couples Who Love Each Other. Now, that was adopted by 161 votes to 34. They also endorsed further discussion of a text on quote, the magisterial reassessment of homosexuality. 174 voted in favor of that, only 22 against. The specific text in the document says the following. The catechism should be revised as part of a reevaluation of homosexuality. Chad, what do you make of these calls for changes in the Catholic catechism from this German synod? I mean, it's so shameful, <clears throat> Raymond. I mean, we, we've been seeing this coming for years, actually. This is the sort of buildup uh, that we were worried about from the very first synod on the family is, is that, that through sort of catechetical changes, through changes to uh, the church's law about marriage and uh, divorce and remarriage, we were going to finally get to this place where, uh, where the Germans got what they wanted, where actually social progressives got what they wanted, which was the blessing of homosexual acts. So that homosexual acts, uh, the 90% of, of, of the German uh, synod thinks that homosexual acts aren't actually mortally sinful and that homosexual inclinations aren't actually disordered. That, that's open heresy. I mean, it strikes me that, that we have on display right now uh, open schism uh, and St. Augustine used to say that that uh, heresy was a schism grown old. Well, now we have actually a, a schism grown so powerful that it can spread its heresy everywhere. Uh, and the calls for the changes to the Catechism of the Catholic Church don't end there. Another text entitled Magisterial Statements on Conjugal Love was accepted uh, 169 votes to 30. The document says, quote, spouses take responsibility for the timing of becoming parents for the number of their children as well as the various methods of family planning. This is done in mutual respect and personal conscience. Father Stravinskis, what's the goal here? I mean, the German church can't just change the catechism. Is this part of a huge pressure campaign, I guess in this case, to embrace artificial contraceptives? The, the great irony here is that the positions being advocated by this German synod, as a matter of fact, are issues that would cause Martin Luther to vomit. Uh, all of the moral issues that they're raising are, first of all, com completely contrary to scripture uh, and the entire lived tradition of the church. And, uh, 
and it's a, a clear example of a desire to, to move in a direction which is actually totally secular, uh, nothing to do with, uh, with the teachings of the gospel. And uh, unfortunately, though, it's well supported by the German church tax. And, uh, and so they have, they have the money, and thanks to modern media, they have already audience. Mm. Chad, uh, just last week we reported on Cardinal Jean-Claude Hollerich uh, of Luxembourg. Uh, he's been appointed the Relator General to this upcoming Synod on Synodality in Rome. Now, in a recent interview, he called for the revision of Catholic teaching on homosexuality himself. He said Catholic teaching is no longer correct. Your thoughts? There seems to be a movement here among leaders in the Catholic Church, if we're not misreading this or understanding this. You think, you think Raymond, that the people who are paying for the Synod on Synodality are, are really going to let the German Synodal Way not set the tone for the Synod on Synodality? It, it's absolutely a test run for, for the Synod on Synodality. This, this is the big push to change church teachings. I mean, you know, worldliness in the church isn't going to work differently than worldliness in the world. We're, we're seeing it mm. right before our eyes. Mm. Is the audience right to be concerned about teaching and the understanding of church teaching? And again, I asked this question last October, that, that, which, you know, we heard rumblings from the German Synod, but nothing like we've been hearing in recent days. Well, I mean, look, look both the lay faithful who watch your show and the Pope have asked for a stress upon evangelization. And what the German Synodal Way gives us is something like um, uh, conformity to disorder, conformity to lies about holy orders, conformity to lies about holy matrimony, and fundamentally a lie about what makes us one in the Eucharist. Uh, so I think we we're, what we're seeing right now is the the test run for a major attack uh, mm. on the church teaching. We 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 have full blown de facto schism with heretical teachings on the table, uh, with a, a sort of parasynod going on in Germany that's supposed to set the tone for what's going to go on in Rome in October. Uh, yet people should mm. be really worried. Uh, Father Stravinskis, here we have the Relator General of this upcoming Synod, as well as the head of the European Bishops' Conferences, saying it's possible to change church teaching, you know, uh, on homosexuality, not same-sex sex attraction, by the way, which the church does not define as sinful, but the acts involved. Is a change in church teaching even possible here? Well, of course not, but uh, Hollerich himself, I mean, he's a Jesuit. Uh, and he ought to know better, I would hope. But uh, in his interview, he indicated that he thought that the church's teaching on same-sex activity was grounded in a misunderstanding of what it meant in biblical times. And he went on to say it was connected to uh, pagan uh, uh, rituals. Uh, that's nothing to do with same-sex activity. That was temple prostitution, and that was uh, female activity, not uh, same-sex activity. So even the basis of what he's asking for is off. I think he's trying to have a kind of fig leaf for himself by saying, well, we're not changing the teaching. We have a better understanding now of what it meant 5,000 years ago, but, but it's not accurate either. 
Ch Chad, do, do, do you believe the sexual morality will be a centerpiece at the Senate of, of the discussion? I mean, it, it looks that way, Raymond. It, look, it looks like everything has been pointed this way, not just with what I think of as a Paris synod going on in Germany, but uh, all the way back to the Synod on the Family. This is a, this is a pattern, a repeated pattern uh, of, of those who uh, have been advancing the agendas during this pontificate. A Pew study released in December found that 29 percent of Americans are not affiliated with any religion. Now, that's up from 16 percent when Pew first asked that question in 2007. Father, when we consider evangelization, which is part of our audience's concerns here, how difficult is it to evangelize when the Church's teachings seem unclear or constantly challenged from within by those who are supposed to support expose and expand it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I said at the outset, we've met the enemy and it's us. Um, and so the problem is we have to get our act together. Uh, and again, people are trying to propose programs that have failed miserably in all of the mainstream Protestant denominations. Uh, certainly, we've had hemorrhaging, but you look at the Episcopal Church, uh, for instance, uh, they're probably about only about 30 percent of what they were 25 years ago. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, mm -hmm. we're supposedly—now, I don't think a criterion ought to be, we'll get more people if we do this. We do it because it's right. true. Right. However, the irony, again, is that these people are saying, no, this is what we've got to do. We haven't gotten liberal enough. And, uh, and we see, whether it's the Methodists or the Episcopalians or uh, various branches of Lutherans and so forth, have all gone over the cliff. And, uh, and so why would you want to repeat the process? Uh, to me, that, no. again, uh, that's independent of a doctrinal issue. A recent report by The Wall Street Journal shows that the Catholic Church is losing members in Latin America, even in Brazil, which has the most Catholics of any country in the world. It's expected to become a minority Catholic country as soon as this year. Now, the reasons people are leaving vary, but critics cite the rise in liberation theology in the 60s and 70s, a time when the Catholic Church in Latin America increasingly stressed its mission as one of social justice, in some cases drawing on Marxist ideas. What is interesting is that many of the conversions in Brazil are to Pentecostal Christianity, people drawn to socially traditional views in these communities. Uh, Chad, where is the Catholic Church falling short in terms of relaying the essentials of the faith, and how does that impact evangelization and cause this kind of hemorrhaging? Well, I mean, just as Father said earlier, just as you, we wa we have all the data, we, we watched the Protestant mm -hmm. mainline absolutely collapse. And in, in America, it collapsed precisely because it lost all of its traditional distinctiveness. And once the church just looks like the world, what motivation does anybody have to make sacrifices for something that's just profane? And I think we see the inverse happening in Latin America. We see, as you say, a kind of liberalizing effect in the Catholic Church globally has made people think it's not serious. It's 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 not uh, official Christianity. It's not um, it's not the faith delivered once for all by Jesus Christ. That's that's the feeling that people get. And so when something like mm. Pentecostalism comes and has fervor 
and believes that, you know, a family's a man and a woman having children believes like basic real things that is not rigid to people, but that looks like reality. And so people flock to that and flock away to they walk they walk away from the truth because the truth has been watered down and muddied and confused and i think mm-hmm. when the when the lay faithful are asking for better catechesis when they're asking for evangelization what they're really asking for is for church leaders to take our church teaching seriously and not try to continue to conform them to mm-hmm. basically progressive ideology yeah but uh, father peter i mean it's really simple they want the truth they want to understand the truth and, and why it's endured all this time and why it will be true tomorrow. But they don't know what that is. It hasn't been clearly defined, or rather now the, the lines of it have been uh, twisted and bent, so they don't really know what they're supposed to believe as Catholics. Isn't that part of well, the problem? All of this brings to mind an episode that where very early in my years as a priest, I was a high school administrator, and it was at the time of John Paul's first visit to the States. And uh, after his visit in a religion class, we were talking about it, and the one kid, freshman in high school, said, I think he's great. I think he's really great. I said, well, you know, in Boston, he said, no fornication, no drugs, no, no, no. And I said, you know, do you, do you live that way? Do you, you know, and he said, well, whether I do or not, that's not important, Father. But the Pope has given me a fence to bump up against, and at least I know how far I could go or shouldn't go. Which, again, that goes back to authoritative teaching. And, you know, presumably a 13-, 14-year-old high school freshman uh, would want total, total laissez-faire approach to life. But he didn't. He wanted a standard, and that John Paul held that standard very high for 27-plus years. Mm-hmm. Returning to the German Synod for a moment, I, I almost hate to do it. Uh, this past weekend, the German Synod voted 159 to 26 to adopt a draft statement calling on the Pope to allow Catholic bishops around the world to ordain married men. Now, we heard this during the Amazon Synod once before. I'll bet it's going to be resurrected once more. It also calls uh, to give already ordained priests permission to marry without having to leave the priesthood. Uh, that 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 was voted on 163 to 42 among the Germans to ordain women as deacons. Now, uh, Father, the, the Church historically has had married priests, and in some instances still does allow for married clergy. What do you make of this demand by the German Synod to increase priestly vocations if priests are allowed to marry? Does that help? Well, well it obviously doesn't because. Let's take a look at the Eastern Orthodox, uh, who have had a married clergy for a millennium, uh, and the Greek Orthodox, for example, their average age of a priest is 10 years higher than ours. So obviously, having a married clergy is not attracting people to the priesthood in the Orthodox Church, and that's at least they're closest to us. With the other denominations, there's no evidence whatsoever that marriage or even female ordination uh, increases the pool of candidates. Yeah. And Chad, what do you make of that focus on female deaconesses? Uh, I, I mean, are there, are, are there so many women out there that want to be deaconesses that it would cure the priest shortage? I mean, is that the remedy? And I thought John Paul II definitively closed the door to this conversation of female ordination. 
Well, as as did Francis, really. I mean, I think I think it is definitively definitively closed, and this is a frustrating point. But I think the the political aim here is to to get the laundry list such that you have all your progressive ducks lined up, and at least you could get one of them through. You could get one catechetical change through if you ask for four ridiculous ones, and. So I, I think I think we have to we have to look at the broader picture here. That the aim it reminds me a little bit of Gallicanism, uh, where the the Gallican heresy is that national customs should trump church teaching, and here right. instead of national customs trumping church teaching, you have uh, basically a global ideology that's trumping church teaching, and they're going to try yeah. to get as many of those things through as possible. So whether they get female deaconesses and through through i think i think they probably are fine to lose that so long as they get a change in the catechism on homosexual acts being all right father the support for female deaconesses and the ordination of married men has also been echoed by the relator general of the upcoming Senate, Cardinal uh, Jean-Claude Hollerich, who we mentioned earlier now th this seems to be as chad indicates a, 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 almost a wholesale global reappraisal of Catholic teaching, or at least that's how these leaders see it. But it's all coming from a desiccated, uh, skeletal Christianity. Uh, there's nothing there that's that's vibrant. Uh, there's nothing there that's attractive. And uh, with the whole thing with deaconesses, you know, we know the whole story, the history of it. Books have been written about it. Yes, there were females who, who were called deaconesses, uh, but they weren't ordained, and their ministry, in quotes, was to assist with female baptism. Uh, so why are we wasting time and energy on all of this? But again, a lot of this has to do with uh, too much money and uh, too little time spent on, on the real things. No. Yeah, as lives fall apart and people are, you know, drifting to eternity. Uh, I agree. Uh, Chad, uh, are you worried uh, about this synod on synodality transforming into something like a lobbying session by, you know, noisy partisans with little or no room to orthodox, faithful, believing Catholics? I mean, yes, I'm worried about it because— you know, historically, I don't know what a synod on synodality is, and I've studied the church's history on synods. It's a bit like having a lecture on lectures or a class on classes or a seminar on seminars. Uh, synods and councils are about resolving some problem in the church right? and uh, some error that needs to be corrected. And all the errors that I see in the church right now are manifested in the German synodal way. And so the, my question is, is what, what error is going to be corrected by the Synod on Synodality? We better hope and pray it's the errors promoted by the Germans. Uh, that's our best hope. Uh, will the Synod on Synodality copy Germany or correct it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and again, these things are set. They're, they're, you know, there's a form to them. And I, I am concerned that even those voices, you know, critical voices that were on the fringes of the last few synods, uh, those pockets of orthodoxy, the question is, will they have a place at all in this it's upcoming stacked. synod? Well, I, I get, the, the deck is ahead. stacked. I mean, the deck is stacked in Germany itself 
when you have a mm -hmm. third of the committee formed by lay people who are all progressive ideologues. You have, the German synodal way itself is a stack deck. They are paying for the synod on synodality, and you're not going to hear the issues that your viewers raise on the floor of the synod on synodality, I fear. Father, isn't this, Freeman, isn't this the, big, just, the big uh, concern? Go ahead. Uh, 25 years ago, I was in Germany uh, uh, around Christmas time. I was visiting a parish in Augsburg um, and was there for the Feast of the Epiphany which is a holy day, it was at least a holy day of obligation in the country. And at the principal mass on Epiphany, there were 14 people in the church. I looked at the parish bulletin. There were 60, 60 paid ecclesial workers. And I said to the parochial vicar, where are those people? He said, they never go to mass at all. And again, it's too much money spent on very bad stuff with bad characters in the mix. And this is what you see in, in the German Synod. It's those same professionals, in quotes, working their way through mm -hmm. through the entire uh, morass of bureaucracy. Yeah, well, as Chad was alluding to, I mean, the question is, who's who's shaping the agenda and who is making the final, uh, who, who's part of this voting body that will make these suggestions to the Pope? But when you hear calls for people who don't believe in anything, uh, non-Catholics, why are they being invited in? It would be like inviting, uh, uh, you know, strangers into your home to tell you how you're going to live in the next, uh, you know, for the next 100 years. This is crazy. You're not a member of the household. You're not a part of the family. Therefore, you don't get to have a say. Go have your own <laughs> synodal way in your own house, but you can't do it here. Uh, I want to move on to another story. On Tuesday, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI personally requested forgiveness from abuse victims. Uh, this was in a letter responding to a report that faulted his handling of abuse cases during his tenure in Munich as Archbishop from 1977 to 82. Uh, Georg Ganswein, uh, Benedict's secretary, read this letter, and I'll translate here. He says, in all my meetings, especially during my many apostolic journeys with victims of sexual abuse by priests, I have seen at first hand the effects of a most grievous fault. And I have come to understand that we ourselves are drawn into this grievous fault whenever we neglect it or fail to confront it with the necessary decisiveness and responsibility as too often happened and continues to happen. As in those meetings, once again, I can only express to all the victims of sexual abuse my profound shame, my deep sorrow, and my heartfelt request for forgiveness. I have had great responsibilities in the Catholic Church. All the greater is my pain for the abuses and the errors that occurred in those different places during the time of my mandate. Uh, Father Stravinskas, first, w what do you make of this report coming out now, faulting Benedict for the handling of abuse cases during his tenure in Munich? Well, I think if we back up and ask, how did that originate, that study? It was paid for by the Archdiocese of Munich. And, uh, and we all know that whoever commissions a study controls the process. Uh, I mean, if you pay Gallup to do certain questions for you, you already have a clue as to how you want that survey to come out. And so that's number one. Number two, when you look at the results, uh, it's interesting. They accuse Benedict of four cases 
and then Vetter in between for many, many more, and then uh, Marx for two or three. Uh, mm -hmm. Marx has never mentioned mm -hmm. any more about it. Uh, and all of the emphasis is on Benedict. This is a clear attempt to you know, destroy anything of a Benedict legacy. And I think uh, Archbishop Genschwein alluded to that in one of his uh, comments to an Italian uh, TV network. Uh, so yeah. this, uh, this should not be taken very, very seriously at all, unfortunately. But it's, it's a hatchet Chad, job. Chad, your reaction to Benedict's apology, which we should say he admits no guilt in, in that apology. Yeah, calls it a confession, but there's no confession. I mean, I just, what I think is so, you know what makes me mad is that the pretext for all of this are, is abuse cases, like real abuse cases, like boys who were abused, like, and the, that is now being used to raise cancel culture to the highest level against an innocent Pope, uh, Pope Emeritus. And it makes me so, uh, it's so angry, actually, that, that our attention is being taken away from abuse victims. And I think this is what Pope Benedict stressed in his own confession, is just that his heart is with them. Um, you know, this huge study that, as Father said, was paid for by the Archdiocese of Munich, um, is really just slander and defamation. Uh, uh, as yeah. Ed Penton said, it's an attempt to sort of damn his memory. And I just think it's so mm -hmm. shameful. It, just it's worldliness at the highest levels of the church, and I think it should should sicken all of us. Cancel culture at the but highest one, levels. Of the yeah, Chad. You know, it's one thing if someone is deceased, but when they're living in the garden, and uh, yeah. and you destroy the moto proprio that was the defining mark of his liturgical yeah. reform, was, and and then you allow these kinds of you know slanders to roam about the land uh, without yeah. real correction. You do wonder what's at play here. Father, I'll give you the last word here. Well, I, I think it's probably a, a good sign in the sense that they know this man has something to offer. And intelligent people now and 20 years from now are not going to look back at the Munich report. They're going to look at mm. the omnia mm -hmm. opera of, of Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI. The same thing that has been tried with destroying the legacy of John Paul all of the attacks on the mm -hmm. Polish Emeriti bishops. Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a drumbeat designed to destroy mm -hmm. the two previous pontificates. And I don't and, think it's And I should, say, I should say, for the record, before we end, uh, Pope Francis did come to Pope Benedict's defense when this yeah. Munich report was first released. So I, I want to state that clearly for the record. Uh, but it's, you know, other parties have their own, I think, agendas uh, in this story. Father Peter Stravinskas, Professor Pecknold, thank you both for being here. We will check in with you in the days ahead. Thanks. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Before we go tonight, as you know, we at The World Over are celebrating our 25th anniversary. This is our 25th year on the air. Uh, and as an author, you know, I love interviewing writers. And I've been lucky to speak with some incredible scribes over the years. Whether discussing the craft or their worldview, there's nothing like talking to a great storyteller. Here are the few we've encountered over these last 25 years. The Queen of Suspense, Mary Higgins Clark, gave us some writing tips that came in handy. I write about very nice people whose lives are invaded. They are not looking for trouble. They are doing exactly what they should be doing. 
and something happens. And I think that maybe this is part of the reason that I've been blessed enough to be so successful. I think people walk in the shoes of the people in the book. Mm -hmm. They say, this could be me. This, this could be my daughter. This could be that sweet girl down the block this is happening to. And even though terrible things, as you said, do happen to these people quite unexpectedly, in the end, everything seems to balance out. And there is a comfort, almost a reassurance in that. Are you aware of that as you're writing? Well, you do realize that suspense, it is the sense of justice. Mm -hmm. The scales of justice have been balanced. The victim has been, her, her, her uh, murderer, if it turns out to be that, has been caught. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, uh, the, the justice, justice is happening. Uh, and that's, that's part of it. We all want the satisfaction of thinking that things are fair again. I am told you occasionally off your enemies in your books. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, well, you know, I joke about that. You know, you have the plumber doesn't show up for the three months that the kitchen is out of, is being renovated. Yeah. And I can visualize it. <laughs> <laughs> being bludgeoned over the being head with a lead pipe. Oh, no, I joke about the fact you can get all your meanness out, you know, in, uh, sure. by murdering a few people. You know, <laughs> in print, in print. In print, purely in print. Master novelist James Lee Burke. I hit the wrong Rubicon with the Lost Get Back Boogie. That was the fourth book, mm. viable book. Right. And I thought I would just publish it, but... Instead, I went 14 years before I got back in hardback. And that book was rejected 111 times. And my agent, Philip Spitzer, whom I met when he was driving a cab in Hell's Kitchen and running a one-man agency at night, kept it under submission for nine years. Oh, my God. And we decided we'd just wear them down. I relearned this lesson during those years I couldn't publish. That if... <clears throat> You never lose faith in the purpose for your gift. If you keep your contract with the, your higher power, the source of your creativity, eventually you'll see the reason for its presence in your life realized. I believe that absolutely, that God does not make mistakes. The teachings of Jesus are the most reasonable explanation for both our connection with the unseen world and at the same time, it provides us with a way of living and contending with a world that in many ways we will never be compatible with. For me, it's the best way to live. I've tried other ways, and they don't work as well. Your cousin, Andre de Beers, yeah. said, I am a Catholic writer. I always look for what's the ethical question here. Yeah. Would you join that course? Sure. I might rephrase it. I'm a writer who happens to be Catholic. But I talked to my uh, good friend, Father Jim Hogan, at Christ the King, our parish in uh, Montana. He said, I was, I, was, I was very complimented. He said, I just finished your new book. You're the most Catholic writer I've ever read. You ooze with Catholicism. <laughs> Best-selling novelist Dean Koontz rarely grants interviews, but... He's granted us a few. The experience of your childhood looms large over your work and your life. Tell me about your father, Ray Coons. Well, my dad was, I didn't know what was wrong with my dad when I was a child. I didn't even know it until I was 
much later in life. But I knew he was an alcoholic because he was drunk much of the time. He had 44 jobs in 34 years. He would punch out the boss from time to time, and that's not a good move. Mm. Uh, and we never knew whether we were going to have a roof over our heads or where the food was coming from. My mom started working in a five and dime, and she was sort of the breadwinner of the family, but it wasn't much. It had to be terrifying for you and your mother. To a degree, and he would threaten to kill us frequently, but he, he would get into those things where life would go very badly for him. He had no faith, really. But then when things would go very badly, and he would maybe end up in jail or in a bar fight or this or that, then he would suddenly take out the Bible and begin to read and declaim over it. Mm. And, uh, and as a kid, I, I say this, it was a dark kind of childhood, but I was not an unhappy child. And when I first ever talked about it, I thought, I began to realize people thought, oh, what a poor, sad child. Mm -hmm. But in reality, even as a child, I knew that happiness was a choice. And you could always find something in the worst of times to make you happy. That didn't make the worst times go away, but it meant that there was a way out of this. And for me, very young, it became books. There were no books in our house, so I would get them from the library. And I, by reading, I discovered very important things. And number one was, not all families were like this. When you're growing up in that environment, you assume that this is normal. And when you find out it's not normal, that gives you something important to shoot. The elegant short story writer and novelist Ron Hansen is always so perceptive and moving. You write in the book that writing is a sacrament. Explain right. that for people. Some might hear that and go, huh? You know, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking at the very basic word sacrament, a okay. visible sign of an invisible grace. And mm -hmm. I think uh, in moments when I'm really writing well, I'm in touch with God in the same way that I am when I'm at prayer. I feel intuitive. Yeah. I feel uh, that I know things I shouldn't know. And that uh, when I'm writing as well as I can, I, there's a feeling of joy even if it's a struggle. And I think that's the same thing that happens to us in a lot of our uh, sacramental moments. And, and, and indeed, you say here, what happens when, when, I'm, when you're writing is very close to what happens when you're at prayer. Explain right. that a bit. As I, I think that well, intrigued I, me when I saw there's it. A, when you're reading or when you're talking, you're, everything is located in your head. Right. But when you're writing well, it's, it feels like it's located in your soul or in your heart or mm. some, whatever. We, to call that central part of ourselves. And so it, it's not really your head. My head is what I use for revision, but the instinctive, natural part of me comes from someplace else, and that's exactly the same place I locate my prayer. And humorist Dave Barry visited our set. Your thoughts on this place over our shoulder here? It's wonderful. I mean, if you, as I say, if you look at your taxes as getting you some, you know, useful service, no, you're going to be very depressed. But if you look at it as entertainment, it's like <laughs> Vegas. But, but funnier, wackier. <laughs> that is all the time we have for now. We'll continue to celebrate our 25th anniversary with some unseen gems that uh, you might have missed over the years. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.